0: Hi, and welcome to a Voices of Esalen Extended Edition. I'm Sam Stern. Today I'm so pleased to present Michael Pollan's keynote presentation at the 2019 Psychedelic Integration Conference here at the Esalen Institute. Michael Pollan is the author of six New York Times bestsellers Cooked, Food Rules, In Defense of Food, The Omnivore's Dilemma, The Botany of Desire, and now, How to Change Your Mind, what the new science of psychedelics teaches us about consciousness, dying, addiction, depression, and transcendence. One of the things that is so special about Michael Pollan, in my opinion, is that he lends credibility to every subject he tackles. Historically, the field of psychedelics is controversial, and controversy naturally arouses a certain degree of suspicion and distrust, particularly for the uninitiated. But when Michael Pollan talks, people listen. And that's because he consistently brings a beginner's mind, armed with a healthy dose of skepticism, to the table. Add in a very honest writing style with pages steeped in clarity, and before you know it, the dubious amongst us might just consider switching sides. I found his speech at Eslin much like his writing, articulate, lucid, and underscored by a palpable desire to affect positive change. One note before I begin, a question and answer session followed Michael's initial speech. To Preserve the confidentiality of the participants. I've eliminated those questions and presented the answers. I've also edited the speech for clarity and for pacing. So with no further ado, here's the psychonaut you can bring home for dinner, Michael Pollan.
1: At Bioneers, I asked Michael Pollan if it was a surprise to him that he has become the global Pied Piper of psychedelics (laughs) and its best known and trusted advocate. He laughed and said, absolutely. About four years ago, when I read his piece in the New Yorker, Trip Treatment, I knew that the psychedelic renaissance was truly underway. The thing I love about Michael is how he shares his thought process with you, not just the conclusions, but the accumulated evidence in all directions. Michael and I are solidly in agreement about the possibility that psychedelics need to become an ecological imperative. We have precious little time to forge a more realistic and powerful relationship with all forms of life and to do what we can to stop the destruction of our ecosystem. Michael, I am so grateful, as I know everybody is, that you were able to join us. Thank you.
2: It's a real privilege to be here for me, in part because I feel more like you guys than these guys. These are my teachers. Almost everyone on this panel, no, I would say everyone on this panel, either through, their, through interviews I did with them or reading their books, uh, really shaped uh, what I know. But hopefully now, I mean, what happens when you're a journalist is you interview a bunch of people, and then you're regarded as an expert. Um, so <laughs> it's kind of a racket. Um, <laughs> But I'll, I'll do my best to channel uh, what they have to say. Um, I am, uh, I'm looking forward to talking to you about a question that's come up a lot in my research, and this was the fact that so many of the scientists I interviewed, if you got them out for a drink or got them talking long enough, would eventually, and these are some very straight sober scientists, would eventually share with you their hopes, uh, as Stan Groff said in that um, uh that quote, um, that these substances have the potential to change not just individuals but society and and help us correct our relationship to the natural world and to one another. Um, It's a pretty audacious claim for a medicine. Um, So I want to have a conversation with you about that and talk to you about uh, is that really realistic? How do you go about it? Uh, And introduce a note of skepticism about it too um, because I do have some skepticism about it and share with you a little bit about my process uh, writing about psychedelic experience, which as you know, is, is not easy to do. Many of you have tried. And I'm gonna give you a little disclaimer in advance. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to frame some questions for you. I don't have the answers on how psychedelics are gonna change society, sorry. Um, and if you wanna go to the baths now, this is a good time to go. <laughs> Um, but I, I, I hope what I can do as someone who's kind of newer to this community than almost all of you, uh, and has a certain distance on it and historical perspective, perhaps from my research, uh, help you frame the questions and, uh, figure out some of the, the key decisions you have to make in, uh, strategically and tactically in, um, bringing psychedelics and, and what they offer, their gift to the larger society, okay? So um, I want to start by telling you a little bit about how I came to this subject, because I'm not of psychedelics born. Uh, as you know, I, I've, I've been writing about other topics for a long time. My, my subject as a writer, as I see it, I mean, many people think of me as the food guy, but I always thought of myself as the nature guy um, because my my passion as a writer has always been the human engagement with the natural world. All my writing begins in the garden and my obsession with plants and growing them And, uh, and understanding the really interesting reciprocal relationship of humans and other species, particularly plant species, how they change us and how we change them and seeing ourselves in this very very much part of nature, not standing outside nature. You know, we're the only species that speaks of having a relationship to nature. I mean, what are the assumptions in that word? I mean, it's bizarre. But we have this odd status in nature that we're in it and we somehow stand outside it. So that's my subject. Of course, if you care about the relationship of plants and uh, of nature and humans, you're going to look at food because that's our most profound engagement with the natural world. We change nature more through our eating than anything else we do. Uh, if you think about the, uh, what's happened to the landscape through agriculture and deforestation, if you think about what's Happening to the composition of species on the earth that is the result of what we like to eat and what threatens what we like to eat. Uh, and if you think of the, you know, even the atmosphere, um, it has been affected more f- by agriculture than, in that case, anything with the exception of the burning of fossil fuels. So, how do psychedelics fit into this? Well, I, I've been interested in all the different things plants do for humans. Uh, They feed us, uh, they give us beauty, and the weirdest thing they do for us, I think, is give us these modes of uh, ways to change consciousness. And that these are all fundamental human desires, and that uh, the desire to change consciousness is um, found in every culture on earth, uses a plant or a fungus to change consciousness, with one exception, and that's the Inuit, because nothing good grows where they live. (laughs) only reason as soon as they move to canada they get with the program and they find their plant drugs or alcohol or whatever it is so that's been in the back of my mind since i wrote a book called the botany of desire which has uh, a chapter on cannabis and i got very interested in this aspect of what good is it to change consciousness right i mean it would seem to be maladaptive yes relief of pain is important It's a very good use of plants but a lot of the more radical ways plants change us and change the experience of consciousness leaves us at kind of disadvantage, right? I mean, you're more likely to be predated. Um, you're not, you're vulnerable when you're high, when you're tripping. Uh, yet we seem to seek out this, this experience. So that, that is a paradox that I've always been engaged by. And what good are psychedelics it, should be fit into that question? How are they adaptive? Uh, are any plant medicines adaptive? So anyway, I wrote. About, I, I started exploring these issues um, in uh, Botany and Desire. And then more recently, I started learning about something you all know about, which is this renaissance of research. Uh, for me, it was learning about the cancer studies going on at uh, NYU and Hopkins. And I found out about that as... Uh, many people did through a little article in the science section of the New York Times about the NYU trials. And I was very perplexed and engaged by that. And like, it seemed like the last thing I would wanna do if I got a terminal diagnosis was take a psychedelic, Um, give up control over over my mind at a moment of this maximum vulnerability, but it was helping people. And I need to give you a little background autobiographically. It came at a particular moment, which is my dad had just gotten a terminal diagnosis for uh, lung cancer, and he was uh, already 87, 88, and um, he uh, didn't speak about it. He just really wouldn't talk about it. Um, clearly, it was, he was depressed. He it just processed it very internally. And as many times as I tried to engage him in a conversation about what he was going through and what it meant for him, I couldn't. And then here were these people in this trial who I began interviewing for an article. And I was able to have this incredibly candid, open, blunt discussion about death, about mortality, about how they thought about what was coming. So that was, I mean, I never mentioned this in the book, but that was a big part of the background of what got me into it. Uh, it was a conversation I needed to have. And, uh, and as it turned out, these, these volunteers, some of whom are still alive and some, many of whom are not, um shared this with me. Um I came to psychedelics as a as a skeptic and uh continue to have some skepticism although I've been convinced uh, of many interesting unexpected things. I'm an outsider to this community still, I feel, which is where you want to be as a journalist. Uh you 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 need to remain a little bit outside. And then I also decided, though, when I went from writing this article for The New Yorker to doing a book, that I couldn't do justice to the topic without having a series of psychedelic experiences of my own. And for me, that was a very momentous decision. I did not do psychedelics at the age-appropriate stage of life. Um, (laughs) Nothing in college. A Little bit of mushrooms, but aesthetic experiences in my 20s. Uh, so I, But I realized this is what, what I needed to do. And as you know, if, if you've read the book, I had a series of guided uh, experiences. Um, I was a very reluctant psychonaut. I was really terrified uh, before almost every experience I had. But they, for the most part, with one notable exception, uh, were wonderful experiences that taught me really important things I didn't know. And raised the kind of questions for me that brings me here today to talk about this issue. One of the things that really struck me in my research, and I was, in, I was interviewing some of the most sober scientists you can imagine, uh, who were working on psychedelics. I'm thinking of people like Roland Griffith or Steve Ross at NYU, or uh, Robin Carhart-Harris at Imperial College, was that uh, in addition to talking to me about the nuts and bolts of their research, they would share this dream that they had. And they would, they would tell me sometimes very explicitly, sometimes less so that these molecules have the potential to change the world. This was kind of stunning to me, um, that the, this grandiosity is what, which is what it sounded like to me, uh, to solve the environmental crisis, to, to, um, and war, bring peace. And um, this is not what you expect to hear from scientists uh, who are always very careful about their claims. And this made a big impression on me. And uh, just to give you an example, um, I came across this quote from uh, a scientist working on psychedelics. I don't even know who it is because uh, he, he gave this quote to a reporter and didn't, and didn't want to be quoted. And that's a, that's a point we need to talk about is the, the taboo of this idea A lot of us don't say it out loud, but it's impossible not to be inspired by psychedelics' radical social potential when you see their impacts on people and how they view the world. We don't want to anger the department heads or touch a cultural third rail by talking about it. Politicizing the research, and it's interesting he goes from, or she goes from that, Idea to this is this amounts to politicizing the research, and I guess that's true, would risk the incredible progress we're making. That's the fear. So I think, in that ambiguity of that anonymous quote, um, you get a sense of where many of the researchers are on this. And you know, people like Daniel Pinchbeck have spoken very openly uh, of achieving what he called a self willed rapid mutation in human consciousness via psychedelics. Now, after having uh, a series of experiences, some of them quite big, I get it. I totally get it. You do feel that this is a medicine for our moment, um, our specific moment. We were talking the other, the other day about why now? And I think the why now is, has to do with the nature of the medicine as well as the general rhythms of history. Here you have something that in many people who take it, um, especially those who have the the vaunted experience of ego dissolution, um, and I'd like to brag about mine for a minute. Um, (laughs) um, That uh, this seems to answer to two of the biggest, at least two of the biggest uh, crises we face. Um, One of course is the environmental crisis and the other is the crisis of uh, tribalist politics, right? They're actually the same problem, I think. And I think that's one of the insights of psychedelics, that they are the same problem. And, uh, and let me explain how that is. Uh, I think that, as I, and this is based on my own experience, I think that one of the things that happens when you do have this either dissolution or even just shrinking of ego is that connections are established, that what the ego does is build walls. And uh, what the ego does is enforce a subject-object understanding of uh, our relationship to other things in the world, and therefore the objectifying of what we're perceiving as subjects. Uh, so, uh, so much of our nature problem is, is the fact that we do see ourselves as outside, standing outside nature, looking at it as the only subject in the natural world. Everything else in nature is an object. As soon as you call something an object, uh, it loses its, I mean, you, you, you're then entitled to do with it what you can, right? You can act on it because um, it, it doesn't have subjectivity. It doesn't have agency. It doesn't have its own point of view. What happened to me on my, my first high-dose high psilocybin trip was a powerful experience of, I was in my garden uh, in New England and uh, a, a powerful experience of the subjectivity of all the plants in my garden. They were returning my gaze. They were looking back at me. They were incredibly benign. They liked me, I'd planted them, I took care of them. Um, and it was a completely uncomplicated, wonderful experience. But it was an idea that I'd had that become flesh. The idea that, that plants have a point of view. I mean, Botany of Desire, the subtitle was A Plant's Eye View of the World. And suddenly I could see the plant's eye view of the world. And it was the most wonderful thing. And I generally had a sense, and I think many people I've talked to have this sense of that subjectivity, or if you want to call it consciousness, is spread much more equally over the world than we think in our ordinary hours. I don't know how veridical that is. You know, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's a wish fulfillment of, a, of an idea I had. It was a concept that became flesh, but there it is. But tribalism is a result of, of course, erecting the same kind of walls, the same kind of objectifying of the other. The other in that case, instead of being plants or animals or other people, and that we see them as objects, and we are the only subject, the only one that matters, or perhaps us and our friends and family. So this, this challenge to the, to the rule of the ego that seems to come out of the psychedelic experience has enormous, political implications for how you see your place in the world and how you conceive of others of all kinds. That's a really big deal. The other other really interesting question it brings up is questions about uh, the usual materialist understanding of consciousness, right? I mean there is a sense that many people acquire that there is some sort of consciousness that exists outside our brains. No idea if that's there's any truth to that, but when I had my experience of ego dissolution, I had the experience of ego dissolution. So who was that I that had that experience? What was that new perspective that opened up that was so untroubled by the collapse of this thing that I thought was identical to me? And I don't know the answer. Some people acquire that perspective, which is just so kind of untroubled, objective, calm, and say, well, that's the mind at large. That's what Huxley, Huxley thought it was. That, that's some kind of transpersonal consciousness. Or maybe it's another character in your own mind that... Anyway, the key point is questions are raised about things we take for granted. So all this is like has implications beyond the individual without question. And some of this has been, I think Ben mentioned the other day, um, has been looked at by some of the scientists. And um, Rick mentioned it too that uh, Imperial College has looked at this question of authoritarian tendencies and nature relatedness on surveys of people and before and after there is a change in those two metrics, which is really interesting. I think we should do that research. I think we should do more of that research and we shouldn't be afraid to talk about it. But anyway, it's, it's, uh, it's really interesting and especially living in this moment where objectifying the other has become essentially the official policy of the United States government, and when the environment is in free fall, this seems relevant, it seems useful. It's no accident that this meme is out there that, if only we could get Trump to trip. (laughs) And, you know... (laughs) It's worth thinking about that. I mean, it is exactly the right prescription for that person, right? I mean, and yet of course it would never happen because objectifying the other, building walls is his superpower. And he knows this very well. And why would he possibly jeopardize his superpower? So then you have to start thinking about, well, could we dose him without him knowing it? (laughs) you know, put some LSD in a, in a, a, a well-cooked steak <laughs> or a McDonald's. But I'm joking, but that, that, the, the existence of that fantasy tells, tells, should tell us something about him, but also about us, right? And that the wish fulfillment that a chemical could solve our problems. So keep that in mind. Um, and it raises this other issue is, okay, if you have a molecule, a plant medicine or a medicine that can, has the potential if enough people take it to change consciousness on a beyond universal level, how do you do that? How do you prescribe a drug to a culture? We mentioned fluoride the other day. That's like the one example we have, vaccinations, okay? but those are not very good models for what we're talking about. Now, this is an old story, and I think here history can illuminate things a little bit. This was very much the conversation beginning in the 1950s when uh, Huxley uh, was introduced to Mescaline, Humphrey Osmond, uh, a psychiatrist who did very important work in Saskatchewan, uh, Abram Hoffer, his colleagues, but also Timothy Leary, Allen Ginsberg, Ken Kesey, they all shared this belief that this molecule had the power to change not just their consciousness, but human consciousness. So this is not a new idea. Uh, It drove Leary really, um, especially as time went on and he lost interest in science. But they, they had a debate then about that question. How do you prescribe a drug to a culture? And there was a real split and that split still exists, and that split is worth exploring between what I would call—and I don't mean the, the the pejorative to apply to this world—to this word, the elitist approach and the populist approach. The elitist approach was uh, best summarized and kind of first articulated by um, this really interesting character from the history of psychedelics, Al Hubbard, who I mentioned last night. And I don't want to go into great detail about him. He's much less known than Leary. He's perhaps just as influential as Leary in his own way. He was a Catholic mystic, an inventor, a rum runner, uh, uh, an FBI agent. Uh, (laughs) He was everything. Uh, Had many, many contradictions, a real man of mystery. He had his own, after becoming a very successful businessman, he had an experience in 1951, an angelic visitation while hiking in Washington state. Um, that he could be involved. An angel came down and told him he could be involved in something that would change the course of human civilization, or he could not be involved. The angel didn't say what it was, but a year later, this is 1951, he reads one of the first pieces of research about LSD. It was a rat experiment. And I don't, I don't remember what LSD had done to the rats. I didn't think it did anything to rats, but it, it, to him it said, this is it. This LSD thing is it. And he got a hold of it. He was very well connected. He'd, he'd run Switzerland for the OSS during the war. Goes to Sandoz. He gets a just, I don't know how much, I'll just say a shitload of LSD. Um, it's variously been said to be 100,000 doses or a gallon vial. Or, and, he sets a, and he saw himself as this catalytic agent for change. He introduced by his own count, 6,000 people to LSD. And in what was an avowed effort, to change the course of human civilization. He believed, and here's a quote from a colleague of his, Abram Hoffer. If he could give the psychedelic experience to the major executives of the Fortune 500 companies, he would change the whole of society. Not just corporate executives, but also uh, religious leaders. He gave it to people in the church, political leaders. He got it to people in Washington. Uh, He just basically had this idea that if he could get the society's elite to change their consciousness, this consciousness would filter down. Hubbard's idea was embraced by Huxley and shared by Huxley, who also believed you should turn on the best and brightest, not everybody. And that that was the best way to do it. And that was a big part of the effort in the 50s. And that's, you know, I I mentioned last night how psychedelics came to Silicon Valley it was Hubbard turning on a series of software people. I don't, I don't think they were called software people then. You know, people at Ampex and other companies. And um, he would take them out to Death Valley and trip them there. As he, and, uh, and he actually helped invent the, the method that is now common of um, playing, you know, beautiful music, eye shades, lying down, guide, uh, owes to this guy, which is kind of, Yet he's sort of been written out of the history. The other approach is best symbolized by Leary, of course. Leary's idea was, no, 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 turn on everybody. And Allen Ginsberg too, and Ken Kesey, um, they were populists in this. And Leary actually like made a calculation of how many people you would have to trip before you could, as he said, blow the mind of America. It was 4 million. And he said this could happen by 1969. As it happened, by 1969, the best information we have is only two million people had tripped, but they had blown the mind of America. <laughs> <laughs> and one of, things, one of the things you need to think about is, has psychedelic, have psychedelics already changed human consciousness? I know you're eager to change it more, but let's look, has it already changed human consciousness? And you could make a case that, that's what the 60s was. Um, that there was a change in human consciousness that happened in the 60s. And we saw it reflected in the anti-war mu- movement. We saw it in the arts. We saw it in music. We saw it in uh, uh, social manners, and mores. We saw it in language. And we saw it in the rise of feminism. we saw it in the rise of the environmental movement. And all these things, although ha- there are many factors involved, you could, you, you could make a, a very good case that psychedelics were in the mix, were a key ingredient in the recipe for that new cake that was baked in the 60s. The potential is there. This fight, though, over the best way to do it, the idea of turning on everyone, was regarded um, by the researchers as a big threat, and the kind of reluctance to talk this way uh, that you find today, I think, owes to this 60s experience and the backlash. Um, Because as soon as you start talking to mainstream society about, hey, we want to change you, we want to change everything, you've entered the political realm, obviously. That is what politics is. And you're going to get resistance. It's a very natural thing. There are people who don't want to change. There are people with strong investments in the status quo. Um, So it's important to understand that taking that position on popularizing psychedelics is a political act and it will probably engender some kind of political resistance that's not a reason not to do it but you're in a fight and it's important to know that this democratic approach is very threatening to the status quo and that's certainly how it was perceived so where does this leave us well as i said the other day it's not fluoride we're not going to put it in the water i think we have to look at these two approaches and see what makes most sense. I actually think as much as I'll bet most of our instincts move toward the democratic approach, a lot of the work we're doing is not going down that line. I mean, when Rick Doblin is giving uh, psychedelics to the peace activists in the Middle East, as as he hopes to do, that's the elite approach, right? Give it to people who can have influence beyond their numbers. It's a leveraged strategy. Um, there's a study now going on, I mentioned last night, at uh, NYU and Hopkins to give psychedelic psilocybin to uh, religious professionals. These two are people whose influence is highly leveraged. If you could have a spiritual revival among the leaders of the major religions, you know, that would influence their parishioners and, 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 and have this knock-on effect. What about all the activists, the environmentalists, the climate activists doing this really hard work and um, getting very discouraged uh, and having to knock themselves, their heads against the same wall for decades? This could benefit them. Again, you have a leveraged approach. I think giving it to scientists is a really interesting idea. Uh, People trying to work on philosophy of mind. Um, People, you know to get scientists to question their materialist assumptions. Um, that too could have a knock-on effect that could be quite powerful and, and, and revealing. I think that we should think about that. I, you know, I so said, don't, don't dismiss the elite idea. I mean, we might need a better word for it, influencers, okay? Um, uh, maybe it's a safer approach. Change makers, thank you. That's a very neutral term, I like that. But if you are gonna take the democratic approach, It it takes more than just saying everybody should use these drugs. It it really takes reaching the populations who aren't getting them. If you really want to be democratic, we have to address this issue. Why are there so few people of color having access to psychedelics? Uh, Why is the movement so much more male than female? Uh, Why the poor don't have access to psychedelics? A real democratic approach to psychedelics would mean doing a lot more outreach to communities and figuring out How either in a therapeutic context, religious context, or some other context, they could have access. Because, you know, uh, when we talk about democratic, we're talking about pretty white, pretty affluent people um, in general. And that was true in the 60s as well. Um, Another way to think about the politics, and I'll leave you with this too, is um, we could think of psychedelics as a diagnostic tool for the politics we need to do. A lot of us are drawn to this idea because it sure seems neater and cleaner than getting out in the streets and organizing and doing real politics to be able to have a drug. It's, it's a shortcut, right? As it is in many ways. I was talking to, I had lunch with uh, Johan Hari, the writer, the journalist who writes on depression and, um, and he's written a couple of interesting pieces. Do you know him, Ben? Um, anyway, he's, he's interesting to read on the subject of addiction and depression. And he did a piece on the depression study in Imperial College. And he interviewed this woman, who had a really shitty, low-level job in some company, and had a uh, was was um, very depressed. And she had this. She was really one of these low people in the totem pole, and, and was suffering stress or perhaps trauma as part of that. And she was in the depression trial, and she had a month of utter relief from her depression, which was a powerful experience. It hadn't happened in a long time. And her big insight is, we're all equal. We're all the same. But she went back to her job where she wasn't equal and she wasn't the same. And, and eventually her depression uh, returned. What do we do with that? Well, equality is an issue here. you know. So do we address her brain or we, do we address the problem of inequality? And so I think so, we can use psychedelics when we think about the insights we have, the importance of love, the importance of connection, uh, the, the sacredness of nature, that these are telling us what we need to work on in the straight world, in the sober world. And, um, and that they are giving us really good information that should inform our politics. So that's a third way to look at it. And you know, I don't have the answer, as I said. Um, I, I think that there, there, it's a really rich and risky area to work in. Um, but I think it's what brought a lot of us here and it, what, what brings a lot of us to psychedelics and that there is this takeaway that I wanna share this, that this isn't just about me, that this could help lots of people uh, or help a sick society. Um, it's just not easy to go from that individual experience to that collective experience. So we have to think long and hard about it. So thank you, thank you very much. I think that one of the big questions a lot of people come out of psychedelic experience with is how do you apply this to a daily practice or a weekly practice because it isn't something you can do every day or every week and and of course where many people come out is meditation and there's this I mean Alan's written about this there's this very interesting link between uh the coming of Buddhism to America and psychedelics and that most of the uh, influential Buddhists. There's another model, by the way, of elite change. Um, most of the influential Buddhists started with psychedelics and, um, and were trying to figure out how to access that, that kind of consciousness in their daily lives. And meditation is a really good way to do it. And, and one of the things that in my own experience, I found that, yeah, experience of psychedelics made me a much better meditator. Um, even though I know we're not supposed to be better or worse at it or strive or anything like that. And I was talking to, uh, there's a researcher named Jud Brewer, who's a neuroscientist who studies meditation at uh, Brown University. He, uh, you know, there there, there was that famous finding that uh, he was the guy who, when he looked at uh, Robin Carhart Harris's um, fMRI scans of the brain and noticed the depression, you know, activity in the default mode network, he was doing the same thing with long-term meditators and he he got the same, his scans look very similar. And so this link was recognized, and he went down to—he uh, hasn't written about this—but Judd went down to Hopkins and participated in one of their uh, psilocybin tests. So he's given a lot of thought to psychedelics and meditation. And he said to me in our interview that he could easily imagine a time when psychedelics are used as a kickstart for meditation practice, and that when you want to start meditating, you get it—you're you're, you're tripped, and your integration works you know, on this question of how this might aid you as a meditator and give you a sense of the destination. And uh, I think that makes really good sense. Um, I think that there might be ways like that to use psychedelics as a a tool to do more uh, sustainable modes of consciousness change. I do I mean I can see I can chart over the course of the last year the kind of mainstreaming of the issue and the people who wouldn't consider this seriously are are considering it now and I think we will see all sorts of cultural products um uh about it um 60 Minutes is doing a big piece on psilocybin research that they're coming to talk to me about um and I think they're gonna I think they're going to uh, uh Johns Hopkins I'm not sure um and they're uh I'm sure that there'll be films. And there are a lot of documentaries in the works. Um, so I think many people are going to be learning about this who haven't learned about it. I mean, the, you know, I don't know if people realize that You're all book readers, pr- presumably, but books reach a very small percentage of America. I mean, you know, you could get a bestseller selling like 10,000 copies of a book in a week. I mean, if you sell them at that kind of pace. So, and this is three, what, 350 million people. So that So it's very important that it reach into um uh other media and it will and I'm going to work on various projects to do that too. I don't know that Oprah's ready for it. I think that'll be a real interesting sign. Um she does this show now on cable called Super Soul Sunday, which I went on and um talked about food a couple of years ago and it's about spirituality in everyday life and um and I was amazed at uh, the reach of that show. Um and how many African American women recognize me on the street, which had never happened before? I'm curious to see if she does this. And and that'll tell us something. Yeah, and and O did a big article on MDMA, but but psilocybin. I want to see if she does something on psilocybin. So stay tuned, I'll let you know. In the in the same way that uh, Stan Groff talked to them as unspecific amplifiers of mental processes. They're probably unspecific amplifiers of human tendencies and social tendencies and psychological tendencies. Um, but they raise this possibility or fantasy in so many of the people who take it, at least in our culture. The, the one area where I, I thought that you could make the strongest case for the influence of psychedelics on culture was um, what we call then the generation gap, where you had young people, rather than joining adult culture, attempting to create their own. Um, most, you know, the, 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 most rites of passage, and I think the acid trip is a rite of passage, um, most rites of passage are organized by the elders to bring the young into adult community. And so, whether it's a vision quest or a bar mitzvah, it's, it's designed by the adults, the young go through the hurdles, and then they join the adult. And it, and it tends to knit societies together. That's what anthropologists will tell you rites of passage are all about. And you get a bunch of cash. And you get a bunch of cash. <laughs> um, here was this, this really weird rite of passage that essentially was organized by the kids with some help from Timothy Leary's of the world. And they had uh, what they regarded as much more powerful rite of passage than their bar mitzvah, if they were Jewish or anything else. And they didn't end up in adult society. They ended up withdrawing from adult society. And like, we need our own lingo. We need our own sexual mores. We need our own food. We need our, all these things. And that was very disruptive. And I think that you can lay at the feet of, um, of psychedelics. You don't want ego dissolution when you're going to the supermarket or teaching a class or speaking in front of a, a group like this. You, you need your ego. Ego is very useful. Ego got the book written. Um, so I, I respect my ego. Um, and that was actually so. T- t- to give you a little bit of narrative, um, uh, for me, the most profound trip I had was this uh, guided psilocybin uh, trip where I felt safe enough uh, and had enough psilocybin in me to um, to undergo uh, and support. Yeah, safe. Well, safety, I think that's key. That I felt uh, that I had this experience of ego dissolution. And it was... Um, not frightening at all. And as I said, this other this other perspective that experienced it opened up that this was a new guy. I didn't know who this was. I don't even know if it was a guy um, where I could observe it without being frightened or troubled in any way. And it led to this sense of merging. Um, and in this case, it was about a piece of music. Um, this Bach unaccompanied cello suite, number two in D minor, which I, I it on your, uh, put it on your phone, it's, it's an amazing piece. It's the saddest piece of music you've ever heard. And um, you've heard it at funerals actually, and um, at least I had. The subject-object duality disappeared and I became this piece of music in a way that's very hard to describe. Um, because our language, our, how we use narrative always depends on subjects and objects. and. Um, so here I was in this place where I, I was this music, I, I felt the bow, Yo-Yo Ma's bow, as if it were going over my skin and I was inside the hollow of the cello and, and uh, it was extraordinary. It wasn't ecstatic, except in the literal sense as I wasn't in my body, I was somewhere else. But it was sad, it was you know profoundly sad. It was all about reconciling oneself to death. And I, when I went back from my integration and I didn't really know what to do with it. Um, and um, my guide who I call Mary in the book um, I, she said I told the story and I said I had this experience that of my ego turning into this little cloud of post-it notes and then this coat of paint on the landscape and I said I, I learned that there's another ground on which to stand that when your ego's gone you don't die you don't disappear there's you know there's there's somewhere else there's another floor and that was kind of amazing. And she said to me, well, isn't that worth the price of admission? (laughs) And I said, yeah, but it's over now. You know, my ego is back in uniform on patrol. Um, So what good was that? Right. What good was that? And she said uh, something interesting um, and kind of obvious. She said, well, you've had a taste of another way to be. You've learned something about your ego. You can practice that way of being. And you can uh, get back to that. And I said, "How?" And she said, "Meditation, actually. Um, she's, That's a way to kind of keep that or, or restore that kind of perspective." So you know, I think the challenge is is getting a little distance on your ego. And it's not destroying it. It's it's realizing it. It's it's one of perhaps several characters in your mind. You don't always have to obey what it says. Now, of course, this is what happens in conventional psychotherapy, right? You can do 10 years getting a little perspective on your ego, but here it happened in an afternoon. And, and th- so that was kind of powerful. So I, I think it's about uh, shrinking the ego, not destroying the ego. Well, speaking as a journalist and someone who's observed politics for a long time, um, don't trust the good press. It could change like that. It changed in 1965 almost overnight, right? Before 1965, the media loved LSD, loved psilocybin. Um, uh, I was surprised to learn when I was researching the book that um, uh, Time Life, um, Henry Luce and Claire Booth Luce were uh, huge supporters of psychedelics. They both had had psychedelic therapy in LA. Sidney Cohen had, had given them LSD therapy. And they ran one positive article after another about psychedelics from uh, 57, when they published Gordon Wasson's account of uh, his rediscovery of psilocybin to um, oh, just a whole suite of articles. And Look Magazine too, we saw it from Jim's talk, was very, very supportive. And then, you know, but the press is not... Uh, the press is licensed by politicians, some fundamental level, the mainstream press. And if they turn against this, the press will turn against this. Um, Or the press might on its own, just because they get tired of positive stories, and and what what else is there to write about psilocybin? Well, somebody died in the depression trial. Suddenly that becomes a really big story. God, there's risks here we didn't know about. And that plugs into a pre-existing narrative that psychedelics are scary, even though, as Rick said, probably someone will die in one of these trials, and it's it's not unusual. And people die from SSRIs all the time, or or when they're on them. That doesn't plug into a, a pre-existing narrative quite as powerfully as this does. So the the possibility of backlash, I think everybody should be aware of, and and I think um, we should talk openly about risks. Um, because that will inoculate things when something bad happens. Uh, it's not like we were blindsided, we knew this was a risk, but we're weighing it against these great benefits. You know, I think that, uh, we should be wary of any gurus that emerge. Um, I mean, that complex is never a happy thing in the long term. (laughs) So look, this is a real paradox of psychedelic experience. This ego dissolving experience has produced some of the great egomaniacs of all time. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so,
2: um, I don't know, maybe the psychiatrist can help us, help us with this one. Um, but I've, I've observed this over and over again. And some of it I think has to do with this sense that you've had such a profound experience. It's like you've gone to the mountain, you've gotten the tablets from God, and then you're a guru. Um, so that you have, you've acquired this key that's so powerful and you want to tell everybody about it, but you have it. And, um, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I mean, there are ways in which psychedelics reinforce our bad tendencies too. And I think we need to be alert to it. I spent a lot of time figuring out how can you describe a psychedelic experience to someone who's never had one? Most trip reports are, are written for other trippers, right? And that's easy, you know? <laughs> People know what you're talking about, you know? Uh, there was a moment I was describing about, um, I was speaking in England to Psychedelic Society and I was telling the story of this, uh, what happened earlier on this trip that I just described it with the ego dissolution and going into the uh, bathroom um, I just needed a break. It was getting so intense. And I go into the bathroom. I'm really careful not to look in the mirror. And somebody says, ah, yes, Trip Face. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know about Trip Face. Uh, (laughs) But there's a community that does. And I didn't want to write for the people who know about Trip Face. Um, And and it was hard to do. The hardest thing I've done as a writer were those scenes. And I spent a lot of time figuring out how to do it. And if you read... Those scenes, you'll see I'm not in the experience the whole time. I I go back and forth between being in the experience and describing what's happening and stepping out and essentially turning to the breaking the fourth wall and saying to the reader, I know how crazy this sounds, or yes, I know, love, it's a platitude, but it's also. So I'm constantly aware of my skeptical reader. And I think we all need to do that when we're talking to civilians there is a sense in which these amplify feelings or wishes that people have there's also this really interesting sense that James called the noetic quality of psychedelic experience that the insights you have have a weight and sturdiness that they don't have in normal life and this is a, a strange phenomenon, um, but the smokers, I interviewed a lot of the people who'd gone through the smoking cessation study, and they, would, they had the weirdest, I, w- I would say, like why were you able to stop smoking uh, after a single psychedelic trip? It seems so implausible. And I remember this one woman telling me, she was this Irish woman, about 60 and she said, well, I had the most amazing trip. I, I sprouted wings, and I flew through European history, and I witnessed all these incredible scenes. And I met Shakespeare and Galileo, and I, um, uh, and I, I died three times. And I saw my smoke rise from the Ganges. And, and I realized, you know, there's so much to do and see in the world that killing yourself with cigarettes is really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and this incredibly banal insight was like written on a tablet and she could live by it, and she's still not smoking. And so that, whatever we explain it as, is a powerful tool in therapy. If you can make people so sure of an obvious insight like that, that I'm sure she's heard a million times, um, you can work with that, it seems to me. So I think we have to be very aware of that. I, I, I do think that a lot of the insights I had were not new but I felt them in a way I had previously only understood them. I tell a lineage of the psychedelic renaissance in my book. It's not the only one. And uh, there was other research going on. There was the DMT research going on um, in New Mexico. Uh, So there were some other things going on. I chose, though, as you often do when you're constructing a history, in focusing on one particular lineage, um, and I, I decided that those events, in uh, beginning with um, uh, Bob's work getting Hopkins launched, at least on the psilocybin side of things, not the MDMA side of things, uh, was really the important lineage that uh, launched things, and particularly this this uh, paper in 2000. Six uh, about mystical experience. It's if you haven't read it, it's a kind of wild piece of science. That such a piece of science would actually come out of uh, Johns Hopkins. Uh, it, no, it had no pretense to any therapeutic purpose, any practical purpose at all. But it was whether could you use psilocybin to occasion—that was the verb they used—a mystical experience. Uh, fairly high dose, I think, like 25 milligrams. And uh, they found that in about two-thirds of cases, you could. And this was uh, a, what they called a mystical-type experience, that it met all the criteria uh, on the Hood mysticism scale. And that now that science could reliably do this, you could begin to explore, well, what would be the use of such an experience? Would it be transformative, as it seemed to be for these people? But the uh, something I don't think we've laid enough emphasis on in terms of the Renaissance, although Ben alluded to it this morning, is that there's a desperation in mental health care in this country, and and a, you know a lack of tools and 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 very little innovation right. since the late '80s, early '90s with the SSRIs, right. and um, and that I think is driving this. Um, I had a very interesting experience that speaks to that, and also the resistance, which is still out there, and I think we should talk about it a little bit more because although you might not find it everywhere, it's I speak all over the country, and there still is. Um, uh, drugs are scary to a lot of people still, and and I think we need to address that better than we do. Um, anyway, when I, I the first thing I wrote about this was a piece in the New Yorker called "The Trip Treatment." That was my introduction to the subject, and it was about the work uh, with the dying uh, that was going on at NYU and Hopkins. And um, I handed in this piece, and to my surprise, uh, the New Yorker accepted it, and um, and all was going along swimmingly, and then. Uh, four or five days before the piece closed, the last you know, the last time you can do anything to it, I get a call from my editor, and um, uh, his editor, the editor-in-chief of the New Yorker, had gotten cold feet about the piece, and he thought it was way too positive, and he uh, wanted me to call and find some big shots who thought it was all bullshit. Um, and uh, so I had a day of frantic dialing. And I thought, well, who's a, who's a big shot likely to think this is all bullshit? And I figured, oh, the head of the National Institute of Mental Health, that should be, that should be a good person. Uh, so Tom Insel was the head of the National Institute of Mental Health. And I, I, I tracked him down. He was in Davos. I get him on the phone. And I tell him about this, and, uh, and instead of saying, well, you know, I don't think we should be looking at these drugs, they're drugs of abuse. He said, no, I think this research is really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> and what you need to understand... And he didn't tell me this until he had given up the job, uh, but we had an interview uh, subsequently. He, um, he said, what you don't understand is how broken mental health care is in this country and that we need to be open. We need to consider possibilities that might seem outside of the box or, or frightening to some people. And, and indeed, he's since gotten involved with uh, psychedelic medicine. I still had to find my, this is all bullshit person. Did you? Yeah, Nora Volkow yeah. at the National Institute of Drug Abuse. Yeah. She obliged with a completely meaningless comment about how these drugs can be abused. And that's, that satisfied my editor and, and the <laughs> I've been sort of a one-man focus group on this. I'm traveling all over the country talking to... This is this is unusual that I talk to an audience that knows this much about psychedelics. And to just be very matter-of-fact about, yes, I had these experiences. I wanted to see what it was like, and, and here's what happened. And um, I just find if you're matter-of-fact about something, people respond in kind. And if you act as if it's a shameful thing or it's a adventurous thing, you know, they'll, they'll tense up. Um, but I do think we have to speak, we have to talk about risk. We have to talk about the fact that, um, I find when I speak to a group that there are, there are always some people, and they're usually women with children still at home, who tense up at the whole discussion of psychedelics as medicine and there and i can feel the resistance from them i can see it in the body language and if i don't talk about risk they'll wait till the question period and and they'll say they've heard some horror story and it might be true story it's not necessarily you know scrambling chromosomes or something like that there's a lot of urban legends that people have heard and they remember the stickiness the propaganda is incredible and and if you don 't talk about risks, nobody hears you until it comes up. They just close their ears so i 've learned to talk about it early on and I talk about the physiological risks and which are which are quite mild and 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 the, and the lack of addictive potential, which is shocking to people and I say there are psychological risks that that people have had psychotic breaks and and um, or people have panic attacks that sometimes puts them in the emergency room, rightly or wrongly, and, and that things do go wrong. And, um, uh, and I think it's important to acknowledge that. And then we can talk about risks versus benefits. And, and that's finally how you have to talk about it. And the benefits are, you know, appear to be quite substantial.
0: Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldine Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Our music is by Nico Holloman. The Psychedelic Integration Conference was produced by Alan Bediner in conjunction with Dream Mulek. If you'd like to hear more episodes, please find us on iTunes. And if you like what you're hearing, take a second to subscribe, rate us, and review. You can also find all of our episodes at our website, esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. The Esalen Institute is a nonprofit organization. Programs like this one are made possible by the support of our donors. Thank you so much for your contributions to our world.